Would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 6? You should have some notes there in front of you. Uh, Look at the title of it, because I really struggled with this. Uh, Rescuing Israel. What I wanted to put there was a portrait of God's sovereignty, because that's exactly what's going on in this text. But then I think about world events and all that's going on right now, and I think about Israel and so I, re-changed, I changed that title to Rescuing Israel, God's Blessing to the Nations. Uh, it's so easy for us to focus on a particular chapter or a particular verse, but unless we pull away from that chapter or that verse and find out where it resides in the rest of uh, the particular book, in this case Exodus, or where it resides, where Exodus resides in all the counsel of God within the 66 books of the Bible, we tend to get so focused on the weeds that we forget about the big picture of what's going on. So with that, let me ask you a question. What were you doing Saturday morning, October 7th, 2023? That will be a day that we will not forget for a long period of time. In the early morning hours of that day, Debbie and I were in Wisconsin. I had just put the final edits to a a sermon manuscript together and closed it that I would preach, I would preach this the next day, and I entitled it, Preparing Believers Worldwide for the Great Commission. And it happened to be the same text that Pastor Tom read this morning in his pastoral prayer, Ephesians chapter four, where it talks about how God gave the church pastors and evangelists, how he gave us evangelists uh, and, and those who would teach God's word. He gave us apostles and prophets who would write the text that we would preach. And I just set that aside. A few minutes later, our guest entered the room, and we began talking about just current events around the world. Over a cup of coffee, we opened a website to kind of get caught up to see what had happened the night before, and there it was, the headlines, the pictures, the videos of terrorists attacking Israel. And my mind at that moment went to Exodus 6, went to Exodus 1 and all that we've looked at. And I just processed those thoughts. Unfolding before our eyes was a well-orchestrated assault from land, from sea, and from air. Wicked Hamas loyalists massacred civilian men and women and worse, cold-heartedly torturing little infants and the elderly alike. Global demands for answers rang out. We wanted to know what was going on and what we were going to do about it as a world. We all asked the question, why would they commit such horrific acts of violence, especially against infants? And as we ponder the many reasons that would come to our mind, we would say, well, because of global famine for the truth, for the teaching, the the, the preaching of God's word, the correct answer is absent from the headlines. And we, when we think of those who are perishing, when, when we want them to hear the biblical answer, they're confronted with their own unrighteousness. And they immediately reject any form of a biblical reason for what's going on, and they flee from it. 
and accuse us of being, of course, heartless. But we know that God promised Adam and Eve that rebellion results in a death sentence. We saw that here, didn't we, in the book of Genesis in the last couple of years? It would be a death sentence for them and ultimately for every other created being that comes after them, including, dare I say, you and me. For 6,000 years, man's quest to escape that death sentence has failed at every turn, except for where our Lord resurrected others from the dead and himself from the dead and maybe a couple of others. Remember, our only creator, our lawgiver, our judge, and our redeemer has the answer, has the answer. He alone is the solution. He, by himself, is the author of salvation. And so he gives us his word. This violence, where did it all begin? This promise, where did it all begin? This promise of salvation. It all started with that Genesis 3.15 seed we've talked about here for, for so long in the last couple of years. And with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, we're reminded of where God is leading this world from history past into the future. God promised to raise up a Savior who would crush our enemy's head. From Abraham came his grandson, Israel. Israel became the nation by which God will bless or curse all the other ethnicities of the world. That is his promise. It will happen. Those that bless God's people will be blessed, and those that curse God's people will be what? Help me here. Cursed. God made Israel, this nation of his, his chosen people, to be a blessing, to be those that would declare his glory among the other nations. Psalm 96 is where you would read about that. It's something that the other nations could not do because God had set aside this this very important people, this unlikely group of rebels to reach the other rebels of the world like us and to teach us to sing of his glory and to sing of his praise. Consequently, Adam, excuse me, Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations in Genesis 12. King David wrote of reaching the nations throughout the Psalms. Jonah, Jonah, ran from it, didn't he? But he preached repentance to the wicked people of Nineveh, and they turned. King Solomon prayed that the peoples of the earth may know Yahweh's name, uh, who he is, 1 Kings chapter 8, 43. Whether through the voice of a serpent in the garden or through Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery or through Pharaoh and Hamas and abortion killing, clinics killing babies, our enemy stops at nothing, nothing as we saw three weeks ago, to hinder the peoples of the world from praising Yahweh, 
We're trying to understand this important text, this chapter 6 of Exodus in a much bigger picture of what's going on. In Exodus 4.22, God warned Pharaoh. He gave him a warning. He said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The indication is you stay away from them. That's a warning. It's a warning. Nevertheless, the Egyptians brutally enslaved God's sons, Israel, as we've seen this develop already in the few short five chapters that we've seen in Exodus. Pharaoh's taskmasters severely afflicted them in the land that once delivered them from the brink of starvation. Do you remember it? In Genesis 46, to the precipice of annihilation right here in our text. Exodus 6. And it's still going on today. And it will not go well for those who treat God's people in a way that is offensive to him. Egypt's repugnance for Israel sent them careening down a path of loathing for the very people that Yahweh raised up for them to save them, to give them the truth so that every ethnicity of the entire world until what? The end of the age, Matthew 28. So moving on, we see that in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron relayed Yahweh's demand for Pharaoh to let his people go. They preached the sermon. They were straight up with him. They basically just gave him what God said so that he must let God's people go. Well, Pharaoh, you know the story, responded disdainfully to Yahweh's authority, and he refused to listen this will not end well for the king and for his loyal subjects. We're going to see that played out throughout the book of Exodus all the way until it occurs. Pharaoh and his slave drivers made Israel's labor substantially more complicated. His goal was to make them work so hard that they wouldn't have time to think about Yahweh, much listen to Yahweh's voice. That was the goal. Their experience is, in a lot of ways, much like our experience. It teaches us a lesson about life and about our God and about how good he is to give us the truth of his word. Listen, no matter how difficult life appears, And it is. Believers must courageously abide by God's work. That is our true north. That is our comfort. We mustn't ever come to a point in our lives where we shut God off and we stop reading his word. Of course, this will not, this is not how Israel, excuse me, how how Israel reacted to Yahweh they conceded, <clears throat> they conceded to Pharaoh's threats. They gave in to them and backed off, and they didn't trust the truth of his word. And Exodus 5.21 is a prime example. We are shocked to see in that passage that Israel prayed that Yahweh would judge Moses and Aaron. And we go, what? They want God to judge Moses and Aaron for preaching the truth? 
Judge them for their subsequent persecution and their possible genocide at the hands of the Egyptians? As we see in the next verse, Moses returned to Yahweh with two unwise questions and two indictments against God. Let's read about it in the previous chapter. We had just moments to cover this last week, but I, I need to point this out. I think it's unfortunate that verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5 were placed there. They could have been verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. It would have helped us to think through the flow of the narrative a little better. Suffice it to say, let me just read verses 22 and 23. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Oh, Moses. We would say, Moses, don't you know who you're talking to? Of course he knew who he was talking to. I think I probably would have said the same thing to God. God, are you paying attention here? Do you see what's going on? Our people are suffering. I get Moses. And God was so gentle in his responses here, uh, Moses, he asked these two questions. Why have you brought harm to Israel? The words there in your text, brought harm, can also be translated, why have you brought evil? Hmm. Why have you brought wickedness? Because it's the word for wickedness. And we would Look forward to the next passage and say, I wonder how the Lord's going to answer this. Hold on. He doesn't answer it quite the way that we would want him to answer it, I suppose. He shells out another question before Yahweh even utters an answer. He says, why did you send me? I'm not qualified. I can't talk. I don't have the gift of oration. Yahweh sees No need for a direct answer. Because in Exodus 3.10, he was very clear. In fact, he was crystal clear with Moses about his objectives. In Exodus 3.10, God already told Moses, quote, I will send you to Pharaoh. Here's his reason. So that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt He already answered the question long before the question was posed. Now for the two indictments. Verse 22, speaking to Pharaoh in your name brings harm to Israel, brings evil to Israel. And verse 23, you've not delivered your people at all, not even a little bit. Is that a true statement? No, it's not a true statement. He brought them to Egypt to save them from starvation. Moses heard God's plan in Exodus 3.8 that he came to deliver his people from the power of the Egyptians. Moses understood that Yahweh would bring them up from that place to a good and spacious land. But now he tells Yahweh, you know what, 
I'm a little confused here. No, I'm a lot confused here. Moses did what God told him to do, and Pharaoh responded with evil. Worse, from Moses' perspective at least, is that God has not delivered his people at all. Somehow Moses' timetable, maybe his calendar sitting on his office desk, didn't line up with God's calendar. When your calendar is out of sync with God's, like Moses, you begin to doubt your commitment for God to act in accordance with your desires. That's a little backwards, isn't it? Shouldn't it be the other way around that we would comport ourselves and understand ourselves, set our calendar in such a way that we would understand God's purposes may not be our timetable? Yahweh is not captive to our time constraints. He has a plan of his own to act at a period of time of his own. And in Exodus 3.19, God told Moses Pharaoh would only budge under an act of force. Exodus 3.19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. All Moses did was what a faithful ambassador does is preach the text. A faithful preacher does not make it so that the people respond in such a way that honors the Lord. The Lord is the one that brings change. We are just the mouthpiece. When you share Christ with your friends and your family, be a mouthpiece. God is the one, the Spirit is the one that brings conviction. Isn't that how it happened with us in our own testimony, in our own life? Three chapters later, Yahweh repeats this again in the very next verse in Exodus 6, verse 1, where he used the same word, compulsion, or strong hand. He used it twice, and that's, again, for for emphasis. When we see words repeated in the biblical languages, it's for emphasis, in Exodus 32, 11, the same word, Hebrew word for compulsion or strong hand is translated as a mighty hand. I'll read it for you. Exodus 32, 11, here's what we read. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power? And here it is, with a mighty hand. It's compulsion. He hadn't exercised that compulsion yet in chapter 5. But all that serves as a context for our chapter, chapter 6 this morning. In our chapter, Yahweh promises Moses with actions against Pharaoh. He says, look, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. Let's read the text. I'm reading from the LSB. I hope you don't mind. It's the update to the New American Standard. I want to read it because it It uses Yahweh's name here. Verse 1, then Yahweh said to Moses, this is in response to Moses' two questions and his two indictments in the previous chapter, quote, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for by a strong hand he will let them go. And by a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. God spoke further to Pharaoh and said to him, I 
am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by not my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the hand of the hard labors of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their slavery. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. Does it sound like there's any doubt in God's voice? Any holding back? Of course not. Verse 7. Then I will take you from my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their wickedness, of their spirit and hard slavery. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, come, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But Moses spoke before Yahweh saying, behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then, then Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a command for the sons of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. As we maintain our focus on the text, let's be reminded of where Exodus 6 resides in relation to the rest of the scriptures. This chapter and the rest of the Bible drives us towards fulfilling the Great Commission. Israel was to be a missionary uh, nation to the rest of the world. This chapter drives us to reaching their mission. To reach the nations with the gospel, you must know that God, you must know God so that you can remember to faithfully carry out his instructions and we would see that today's text challenges us, or challenges you to remember three criteria to reach the world with God's word. You can see them there in your outline. You must remember that Yahweh keeps his promises. Remember to trust God's promises. And remember that God sovereignly uses incapable people like you and like me to fulfill those promises. So the first one. Yahweh keeps his promises. In chapter 6, Yahweh's answers came with commitments for actions that he will take against Pharaoh. We mustn't remember that Moses is the one that wrote this book. He was not just an eyewitness. He was a primary participant in everything that happened here in the text. In verses 1 and 2, Yahweh answers Moses in two ways. First, by what Moses is going to see, and second, by who Yahweh is. That's in verse 2. Let's begin with what Moses will observe, with what Moses is about to see. 
Moses, again, is the primary witness to both what God said to him and to God's coming wrath upon Moses. Remember, Pharaoh imagined himself as the ultimate sovereign over all those in his land, uh, all those within his kingdom. Herein lies a warning to world leaders. Psalm 115.3. We know that our world leaders, we would say to them, you're not the chief. You exist and serve at the pleasure and judgment of your sovereign. And in Psalm 115.3, he is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Pharaoh, you are not in control. Oh, the pride of this man will be broken, and the pride of Egypt will be broken in such a significant way, but it doesn't have to be that way. Had they just listened to the truth, it would have ended much differently, but that wasn't God's plan. Moses is going to see Yahweh force Pharaoh to crumble under his sovereignty. God could have just simply plucked Egypt out of Israel out of Egypt and dropped them in Jerusalem and been done with it. That's not the way God chose to do it. Instead, he sovereignly acted in dramatic ways. Specifically, Moses is going to watch Pharaoh undergo God's judgment through each plague. They're coming. And then God will, as he said here, with his strong hand, leave Pharaoh with no other choice but to admit that Yahweh is his supreme sovereign. And at that time, we know from Exodus 11.1, 1, Pharaoh will forcefully drive Israel away. So, God's first response pertains to what Moses will see. The second response to Moses is about who God is in verse 2. God reminds Moses of his name. He says, I am Yahweh. Moses' questions and indictments suggest that he forgot God's name, and so God repetitively in this chapter reminds him of who he is. In Exodus 3.15, God told Moses that Yahweh is his memorial name from generation to generation. This is the first time out of six in this chapter that God told Moses his name is Yahweh. He's repetitive here because he doesn't want Moses to forget the emphasis. In Exodus 3.14, a verb describes God's name. God's actions define his identity. After telling Moses his name in verse 2, I am Yahweh, God backs up his identity with, and you can count them, 13 statements of actions describing what he has done or what he will do. Note, God starts and ends these 13 acts with his name, I am Yahweh. And he repeats the same thing four more times in between each occurrence. He demands that we must never forget his sovereignty. I don't want you to miss the important point preceding Yahweh's 13 actions are the words I, I am, I have, or I will. 
Each of these pronouns reminds you about how God has sovereign control, not just over Pharaoh, but over you and over me. We can never take that away from him. Verse 1 is the first one. I will compel Pharaoh's hand to expel Israel from the land. The ten plagues that we're going to find out about here soon. The ten plagues force Pharaoh to drive Israel out of the land. And in Exodus 12, 33, the panic-stricken Egyptians pressed the people to eject them from the land of Israel. They'd watch their firstborn sons die. They watched the animals die. They watched the plagues happen. And they're like, get out. We'll give you gold. Just leave. And so they were forced out with a strong hand. It was God's hand that was pushing the enemy to push them out. Verse 3 says, I appeared to the patriarchs. And you can see their names there. As, as who? As, as God Almighty. Verse 4, I established my covenant with the patriarchs to give them the land. Verse 5, I have heard of the groanings of Israel's sons because of the Egyptians holding them in slavery. Verse 5 again, I have remembered my covenant made with the patriarchs. That I have remembered statement there is a, is a verb of, of habitual action. I remembered it, I'm remembering it now, and I'm going to continue remembering it. I will never forget my covenant made with the patriarchs. It will come to fruition. Moses, don't you know that? That that as I tell you to preach to this people, to this Pharaoh, don't disregard my word. I'm with you. Verse 6, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the hard labor of the Egyptians. Verse 6 again. I will deliver you from their slavery. And in Exodus 12, 37, we read that about 600,000 men exited Egypt. That's about 2 million people when you count men, women, and children. God is the one who brought them out from under the Egyptian slavery and hardship. Verse 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Verse 7, I will take you for my people. And verse 7 again, I will be your God. Verse 7, you shall know that I am Yahweh. How will they know? Because he's committed to stick with his word, with his promises. Verse 8, it's the twelfth one. I will bring you to the land which I swore to your patriarchs. And in Joshua 3.17, we read these words, all of Israel crossed the Jordan, it's a big river, on dry ground. Last but not least, the 13th is verse eight. I will give the land to you, and I stake my name on it, I am Yahweh. Well, what are we supposed to make of all this? They were facing trials. We face trials. They were facing persecution. We face persecution. They were facing difficulties in life. We face difficulties in life. 
And when you face these trials, these uncertainties, these struggles and rebellious children and grandchildren, stubborn parents and grandparents, failing government and wicked cultures and warring nations, never forget that your God is almighty. He knows exactly what's going on and he has the answer. He is Yahweh. He always delivers his promises on time, every time. So in verse 6, Yahweh instructs Moses to repeat these 13 things to Israel. Go tell them again, Moses. Well, surely they will listen to Moses and support him, right? Wrong. (laughs) Sadly, wrong. Surely, our sons and daughters, surely we will listen to Moses and, uh, and God's word, and we will listen to the Lord, and we will certainly obey throughout our lifetimes, right? Wrong. But God is faithful, and he accepts our repentance, and he brings his son into our lives to pay the debt that we could not pay for our own sins. Watch what they do in verse 9. So Moses... He was obedient, and he spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen. They did not listen to Moses on account of their weakness and spirit and hard slavery, their despondency and their cruel bondage. Moses told Israel about God's faithfulness and his sovereignty over Pharaoh, They forgot that Almighty God appeared to the patriarchs, that he established a covenant with them, and that he heard their groanings. They had zero confidence that he would deliver them from their slavery, that he would redeem them with his outstretched arms, that he would take them for his own people, and that he would be their God, and that they would be his people, and that they would know him. Why do people, why, let me make it more specific, why do believers, Christians, you and I, why do we forget that God is sovereign over everything? Over everything. We are a fragile, untrusting lot, aren't we? We must remember that Yahweh keeps his promises especially when the most extreme circumstances fly up against us in our lives, and even without warning. Those dear, precious people in Israel three weeks ago had no idea what was going to happen to them that day. Oh, had they trusted Christ. Oh, had they heard the gospel. Israel allowed their troubles to blindfold them from God's love. They thought their depression and their harsh circumstances were sovereign over their lives. So in verse 9, what did they do? They, they didn't listen to Moses. They didn't listen to God's ambassador. But why? Do you see the reasons there in verse 9? Moses gives two reasons for which Israel refused to listen to him. The first reason, weakness of spirit or in the New American Standard, on account of their despondency. 
It was the second reason they refused to obey God. It was their cruel bondage and their hard slavery. They thought if they listened to God more, it would be even more difficult. Listen to what Philip Ryken, one of my favorite expositors, one of my favorite um, commentators on this book of Exodus, Philip Ryken describes their, their pathetic situation this way, quote, they were unmoved by his promises of deliverance and conquest. They refused to believe that he was the Savior and Lord. They didn't even care what his name was. They just wouldn't listen. The same thing often happens when people first hear the message of salvation in Christ. Someone explains to them how they can receive forgiveness for their sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They seem to be listening, but then, very politely, they change the subject. Or they say they've already believed in God. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it. They insist that while Jesus may be great for others, he is of no use to them, and so they say flat out they aren't interested. Reichen goes on. Christians are often supervised, or excuse me, surprised when this happens. How could anyone possibly reject the good news of salvation? All the pains of hell can be avoided, and all the blessings of heaven are available. And the one and only thing a sinner needs is to believe that Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ, and even then, and even when this is explained, some people still aren't interested. And he poses the question, why not? The Bible, he says, gives the answer. They did not listen because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery, in verse 9. In other words, the Israelites were enslaved by their slavery. Jesus answers that same question about why do they do this in John 3.19. Why don't unbelievers obey God? Well, because, he says, the light has come into the world, and here it is. Men agaped, men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because Jesus says their deeds are evil. They don't want the light in their lives because their deeds are evil. They would rather toil in their own slavery to their own sin than to admit that Jesus is sovereign over them. So, in your great commission activities, remember that Yahweh always keeps his promises, always. There's a second criterion to reach the world with God's love, a second one. We see it in verses 6, uh, 10 through 13. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, come and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before Yahweh saying, behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. When Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, he gave them a command for the sons of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Yahweh repeatedly warned Moses with the words, I will. He made his case in verses 1 through 9 and in verse 11, God directly commands Pharaoh again, Moses again, to command Pharaoh to let his people go. 
As Yahweh's ambassador, as his mouthpiece, Moses must issue, the, must issue God's ultimatum. It is no different for those who are proclaimers of God's word today. They must proclaim his word. They must be his ambassadors. They're obligated to tell the truth of God's word so that the peoples of the world can hear him speak through the texts of Scripture. No excuses, Moses. No excuses to us in the year 2023. But in verse 12, Moses told God that the Israelites and Pharaoh are basically on the same team. They refused to listen to him. It's like the Israelites and Pharaoh teamed up against God. From Moses' perspective, Almighty God picked the wrong man. Moses says, for I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Maybe you're like me when you hear these words of Moses. Maybe we get Moses. When you or I, maybe we're under pressure and trying to articulate the truth of God's word on the spur of the moment, I know for me, sometimes I choke. Sometimes I, I doubt my ability to authoritatively proclaim God's word. And we, like Moses, think that the message is ours. Get over it. It's not your message. It's God's message. Do what he told Moses to do. Just speak the truth and let God take care of the rest. In verse 13, God didn't accept any excuses for lack of trust. Once again, he commanded Moses and Aaron to tell Israel and Pharaoh to bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And then just when we reach that most riveting part of the narrative, Moses, at the direction of the Holy Spirit, throws in 12, 12 verses of genealogy into the mix. Like, Moses, what are you thinking here? Genealogy? How does this fit here? Let me just read it, verse 14. These are the heads of the father's households. The sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben, the, the, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin, Ohad, Yakin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi. Where is he going with this? The names of the son of Levi according to their generations. Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of Levi's life were 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai according to their families. The sons of Kohath, Amron, and Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of Kohath's wife were 133 years. Why is that important, Moses? The sons of Murai, Mali, and Mushi. These are the families of the Levites according to their generations. And Amram took his father's sister, Jochebed, as his wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of Amram's life were 137 years. The sons of Izhar and Korah and Nepheg and Zikri, the sons of Uziel and Mishael and Elzaphon and Sithri, 
And Aaron took Elishabah, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, as his wife, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithmar, the sons of Korah and Asher and Elkanah and Abisath. These are the families of the Korathites. And Aaron's sons, Eleazar, took one of the daughters of Petiel as a wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's households of the Levites, according to their families. And it was the same Aaron and Moses to whom Yahweh said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their host. And they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring them out, the sons of Israel, from Egypt. And it was the same Moses and Aaron. This genealogy is a garnishment to the first 13 verses. The genealogy reveals God's choice of Moses and Aaron as his spokesmen who are in keeping with this royal family line. Remember, he said to Abraham, from your seed. And God wanted to show that Moses and Aaron are from that line. From the line of Abraham to Levi and to his descendants, no leader in Israel outside this family line qualifies to speak for God in the same way that Levi's descendants, Moses and Aaron, would do. You see, God chose them, and he wanted to show them from this genealogy. He says to Pharaoh, and he says to us, physical impediments cannot negate God's sovereignty over your life, over your vocation. Yahweh qualifies Moses for the job. He's equipped. Looking beyond these people and the nations of Israel, if we're going to reach the world with the gospel, we must remember that Yahweh keeps his promises. We must remember to trust those promises when it leads, which leads to the third criterion for those nations. The third one, you must remember that God sovereignly uses incapable people to fulfill his promises. And we see that in verses 26 through 30. The clock prevents us from developing this point further. But just know that 26 through 30 summarizes verses 1 through 25. From God's most grandiose plans to seemingly the simplest of projects, he chooses the right men, the right women, for every act of service to him. Even those like Moses, who see themselves as incapable of completing the task because his mouth doesn't work right. God's demand is clear. Verse 29, no more excuses, Moses. I am Yahweh. Speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I am speaking to you. And this is an imperative. Moses, get to it now. He chose Moses and Aaron to preach the message that requires an exodus of more than two million people out of Egypt. No wonder he saw that as a difficult task. And he looked at his own lack of giftedness or skill sets to say, I can't do it, Lord. You've, you've got the wrong guy. Now, that's a tall, tall order for anybody to do. To lead two million people out of slavery? Those generations are long gone. They're long gone. The Great Commission is still in force. You know what? Now it's our turn. No, it's your and my turn. 
We must be about the task. God chose you to faithfully serve him in the place that you're serving by leading our generation out of bondage to sin and into repentance to an eternal home with Yahweh. God requires you to simply be his ambassador, to be men and women who will tell the people who have sinned against God Almighty to repent. Will you tell them that if they turn from sin and serve Jesus as their Lord, that his death and his resurrection satisfies God's requirement of wrath over their lives because Jesus took on that wrath? Jesus pays the debt in full. All we have to do is relay the message. Will you relay to them God's message that their only righteousness is Jesus himself? Only his righteousness can be their righteousness given to them? That he is the sole source of eternity with God and with his chosen people? This is where Exodus 6 takes us. He was to simply warn as we are to warn. And without that message, people who were lost will remain dead in their sins and transgressions. The full force of God's wrath will remain upon them. And it's our job, our ministry, to lovingly, carefully point people to the gospel. Thank God for Exodus chapter 6 and the rest of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that you would Help us to understand a little bit about Israel, even from today's perspective, reaching all the way back to thousands of years ago, that we would have an an understanding of, of this promised seed that you would bring all the way through that royal family so that when Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, came into our world and died a death, on a cross, and rose from the dead, and redeemed his people, and calls his people to continue that message of redemption, salvation by the spoken word, that we would be those, Lord, that you would use, and that you would open up the eyes, open up the ears of those that hear the gospel, Lord, and bring them to yourself through us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.